Section 3. Part 3 of Section 1 of the Introduction of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blackstone, Book 1. Introduction, Section 1, Part 3 The incident, I mean, was the fixing the Court of Common Pleas, the Grand Tribunal for Disputes of Property, to be held in one certain spot, that the seat of ordinary justice might be permanent and notorious to all the nation. Formerly that, in conjunction with all the other superior courts, was held before the King's Capital Justiciary of England, in the Aula Regis, or such of his palaces wherein his royal person resided, and removed with his household from one end of the kingdom to the other. This was found to occasion great inconvenience to the suitors, to remedy which it was made an article of the Great Charter of Liberties, both that of King John and King Henry the Third, that common pleas should no longer follow the king's court, but be held in some certain place, in consequence of which they have ever since been held, a few necessary removals in times of the plague excepted, in the palace of Westminster only. This brought together the professors of the municipal law, who before were dispersed about the kingdom, and formed them into an aggregate body, whereby a society was established of persons who, as Spellman observes, addicting themselves wholly to the study of the laws of the land, and no longer considering it as a mere subordinate science for the amusement of leisure hours, soon raised those laws to that pitch of perfection which they suddenly attained under the auspices of our English Justinian, King Edward I. In consequence of this lucky assemblage, they naturally fell into a kind of collegiate order, and, being excluded from Oxford and Cambridge, found it necessary to establish a new university of their own. This they did by purchasing at various times certain houses, now called the Inns of Court and of Chancery, between the city of Westminster, the place of holding the King's courts, and the city of London, for advantage of ready access to the one, and plenty of provisions in the other. Here exercises were performed, lectures read, and degrees were at length conferred in the common law, as at other universities in the canon and civil. The degrees were those of barristers, first styled apprentices from apprender to learn, who answered to our bachelors, as the state and degree of a sergeant, servientis at legem, did to that of doctor. The crown seems to have soon taken under its protection this infant seminary of common law, and the more effectually to foster and cherish it, King Henry the Third, in the nineteenth year of his reign issued out an order, directed to the mayor and sheriffs of London, commanding that no regent of any law schools within that city should for the future teach law therein. The word law, or legis, being a general term, 
may create some doubt at this distance of time whether the teaching of the civil law or the common or both is hereby restrained but in either case it tends to the same end if the civil law only is prohibited which is mr selden's opinion it is then a retaliation upon the clergy who had excluded the common law from their seats of learning if the municipal law be also included in the restriction as sir edward cook understands it and which the words seem to import then the intention is evidently this by preventing private teachers within the walls of the city to collect all the common lawyers into the one public university which was newly instituted in the suburbs in this juridical university for such it is insisted to have been by fortescue and sir edward cook there are two sorts of collegiate houses one called inns of chancery in which the younger students of the law were usually placed learning and studying says fortescue the originals and as it were the elements of the law who profiting therein as they grow to ripeness so are they admitted into the greater inns of the same study called the inns of court and in these inns of both kinds he goes on to tell us the knights and barons with other grandees and noblemen of the realm did use to place their children though they did not desire to have them thoroughly learned in the law or to get their living by its practice and that in his time there were about two thousand students at these several inns all of whom he informs us were filii nobilium or gentlemen born hence it is evident that though under the influence of the monks our universities neglected this study yet in the time of henry the sixth it was thought highly necessary and was the universal practice for the young nobility and gentry to be instructed in the originals and elements of the laws but by degrees this custom has fallen into disuse so that in the reign of queen elizabeth sir edward cook does not reckon above a thousand students and the number at present is very considerably less which seems principally owing to these reasons first because the inns of chancery being now almost totally filled by the inferior branch of the profession they are neither commodious nor proper for the resort of gentlemen of any rank or figure so that there are now very rarely any young students entered at the inns of chancery secondly because in the inns of court all sorts of regimen and academical superintendents either with regard to models or studies are found impracticable and therefore entirely neglected lastly because persons of birth and fortune after having finished their usual courses at the universities have seldom leisure or resolution sufficient to enter upon a new scheme of study at a new place of instruction wherefore few gentlemen now resort to the inns of court but such for whom the knowledge of practice is absolutely necessary such i mean as are intended for the profession the rest of our gentry not to say our nobility also having usually retired to their estates or visited foreign kingdoms or entered upon public life without any instruction in the laws of the land and indeed with hardly any opportunity of gaining instruction unless it can be afforded them in these seats of learning 
and that these are the proper places for affording assistances of this kind to gentlemen of all stations and degrees cannot, I think, with any colour of reason be denied. For not one of the objections which are made to the inns of court and chancery, and which I have just enumerated, will hold with regard to the universities. Gentlemen may here associate with gentlemen of their own rank and degree, nor are their conduct and studies left entirely to their own discretion, but regulated by a discipline so wise and exact, yet so liberal, so sensible and manly, that their conformity to its rules, which does at present so much honour to our youth, is not more the effect of constraint than of their own inclinations and choice. Neither need they apprehend too long an avocation hereby from their private concerns and amusements, or, what is a more noble object, the service of their friends and their country. This study will go hand in hand with their other pursuits. It will obstruct none of them, it will ornament and assist them all. But if, upon the whole, there are any still wedded to monastic prejudice that can entertain a doubt how far this study is properly and regularly academical, such persons, I am afraid, either have not considered the constitution and design of an university, or else think very meanly of it. It must be a deplorable narrowness of mind that would confine these seats of instruction to the limited views of one or two learned professions. To the praise of this age be it spoken, a more open and generous way of thinking begins now universally to prevail. The attainment of liberal and genteel accomplishments, though not of the intellectual sort, has been thought by our wisest and most affectionate patrons, and very lately by the whole university, no small improvement of our ancient plan of education and therefore I may safely affirm that nothing, how unusual soever, is, under due regulations, improper to be taught in this place which is proper for a gentleman to learn. But that a science which distinguishes the criterions of right and wrong, which teaches to establish the one, and prevent, punish, or redress the other, which employs in its theory the noblest faculties of the soul, and exerts in its practice the cardinal virtues of the heart, a science which is universal in its use and extent, accommodated to each individual, yet comprehending the whole community, that a science like this should have ever been deemed unnecessary to be studied in an university, is matter of astonishment and concern. Surely, if it were not before an object of academical knowledge, it was high time to make it one. And to those who can doubt the propriety of its reception among us, if any such there be, we may return an answer in their own way, that ethics are confessedly a branch of academical learning, and Aristotle himself has said, speaking of the laws of his own country, that jurisprudence, or the knowledge of those laws, is the principal and most perfect branch of ethics. From a thorough conviction of this truth, our munificent benefactor, Mr. Viner, having employed above half a century in amassing materials for new modelling and rendering more commodious the rude study of the laws of the land, 
consigned both the plan and execution of these his public-spirited designs to the wisdom of his parent university. Resolving to dedicate his learned labours to the benefit of posterity and the perpetual service of his country, he was sensible he could not perform his resolutions in a better and more effectual manner than by extending to the youth of this place those assistances of which he so well remembered and so heartily regretted the want. And the sense which the university has entertained of this ample and most useful benefaction must appear beyond a doubt from their gratitude in receiving it with all possible marks of esteem, from their alacrity and unexampled dispatch in carrying it into execution, and, above all, from the laws and constitutions by which they have effectually guarded it from the neglect and abuse to which such institutions are liable. We have seen an universal emulation, who best should understand or most faithfully pursue the designs of our generous patron, and with pleasure we recollect that those who are most distinguished by their quality, their fortune, their station, their learning, or their experience, have appeared the most zealous to promote the success of Mr. Viner's establishment. End of section 3 Recording by Graham Redmond